I want to first and foremost say that I am excited this morning to be talking about the book of Acts. I wanted to actually start this as a Bible study last year. Uh, Initially, before we did Luke, I really was like, let's do the book of Acts. Acts is awesome. And it's awesome because it's all about the start, the foundation of the church, right? And so I thought it would be a good time to do it. But as I was praying, God was like, no, you really need to go through the gospel again. So we went through Luke. And then afterwards, uh, I I kept praying some more. and, And I felt like, okay, well... Maybe now isn't the time to start the Bible study. And then after talking and praying and, and then talking to Pastor Markello and Pastor Mitchell, we decided that, that now is the time to do Acts, but not in a Bible study. Now is the time to do it here in our church and just go through it. So I don't know how long this is going to take us to go through. Um, I can promise you this. It will be a while. We'll be in here for a while. And uh, that's okay. <laughs> uh, basically, the way we've got it lined up, just for the next six weeks, we will be in the first two chapters. And there's a lot, that, a lot of ground that gets covered in this book, especially when we think about Christ and we think about Christ's mission that is being taken out. And so today, this message is called Missional Christianity because that is kind of the foundation of everything that Christianity is based on. So I'm going to give you a little bit um, of information about Acts before we start, right? Because I'm a history nerd. I like history. I like that kind of information so that we can all be on the same page. Now, if you were in the Bible study for Luke, you would know that I've basically been setting this up the entire time. (laughs) So from the beginning, I've always been setting up that we would go into the book of Acts. And the reason why is because Acts is the sequel to the book of Luke. It's the second chapter, essentially. There are several chapters. There's 24 in Luke. There's 28 in Acts. But it's the second chapter to Luke's gospel. It's a continuation of all that goes through. And so it was written by, as, we, as best we know, by a man named Luke. Uh, he was considered the uh, beloved physician. He was a friend of the Apostle Paul. He traveled along with them. You can find him a few times mentioned in, uh, in like Philemon and a few other places in the, in the epistles. And so uh, from what we basically know is from the first century on, Luke was writing these narratives and compare, basically compiling all of these stories into one, both the gospel and what happens afterwards, which is what we're about to start reading. And so we kind of have an idea of when it was written as well, which is really cool. If we look at Acts through the, the whole big picture of it, and if we start from the beginning and we go all the way to the end of Acts, Acts ends in an open-ended manner. So it ends in chapter 28. Paul has been essentially captured, and he's in prison, and he's basically preaching to anyone who will come visit him, right? That's basically how it, how it ends. I'm giving you the ending of the beginning. I'm, I'm pulling a uh, this isn't a good move by any means, but I'm going to do it. Uh, <laughs> that's where it ends. But it doesn't really end there. It's actually written to be, have this sort of ambiguous ending where we continue the chapters. So every generation afterwards is the continuation Amen. of that story. Because if we know something about Paul, he was later released. And then after he was released, he was captured again. And then he was martyred, right? And none of that was continu- like written in this book. And so that kind of gives us a time and place for when this book is written. And then there's this major, major event that happens around 70 AD in Rome and in Jerusalem, where the Roman soldiers came in and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, just as Jesus had prophesied in the book of Luke and and throughout the gospel. And that's not mentioned in here either. (laughs) So those two things give us the inclination that it was written before that. So based on that, we have the idea that it was written around AD 65 to 68, something like that. 
So there's part of your history lesson. Uh, and then we know that it's Luke because of there's a few sections near the end where it switches from the third person narrative and he goes into we. And he starts talking about how he is included, like when the ship wrecks and he's there with them, right? And so we know that someone's there. And so when we look at all the people who traveled or were with Paul, he's the only one who fits the credentials to write a book like this because it's very complex. In second, in second to Paul, as far as Koine Greek goes, no one else writes like Luke. And so the only one who could do it is someone who is very fluent <clears throat> in both Greek and then both also in a, a little bit of Judaism, so he had a Hebrew background as well. And so Luke, the physician, is the only one who meets those requirements. And since the second century, both Arrhenius and Justin Martyr and those people have continued that train of thought and continued that tradition, and pretty much no one really fights that. No one, no one fights that Luke is the one who wrote this. And what's interesting is both Luke's gospel and the Acts are all about the Holy Spirit. And so it is very easy for us to say that he wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because he was with them. Hellenistic writers were very, very good at digging deep. They were the, the front lines. They would get in in the time period, go around with these people, and embed themselves in the story. It's kind of like war journalism today, right? Like you have these journalists who go out into these fields, and they will literally be side by side with people in Syria. And while they're not carrying a gun, they're carrying a camera and a pen, right? That's how Luke treated this. And we have to remember, too, that at the time of writing this, in the time of being a Christian, was not the easiest time. It was a highly persecuted time. These people here were persecuted by both Rome and also by the Jewish nation. And so Luke was embedding himself in the front lines. And he was doing so because there was a story that needed to be told. And that story is the book of Acts. Now, it's interesting uh, that we will start here first in the name, right? The name Acts. Usually, for, for Greeks, when you were using the word Acts, you would say Acts of Caesar or Acts of someone else to follow, right? And so it was commonplace for it to be of someone of superior uh, standing. And so by him just calling the book Acts, <laughs> he's basically saying this is the Acts of God, right? And so while we know it as Acts of the Apostles, we really should call it the Acts of Jesus Christ through the Apostles or the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles because that is what this book is about. So from the very beginning, this book is not about just apostles doing things. Rather, this is the continuation of the gospel, as we'll see in these first 11 verses. So if you have your Bibles with me, with you, let's start out with the first five verses of this, this book here. And we'll kind of break these down. So we'll read through it, and then we'll kind of go line by line and make sense of what's being said so that we're all on the same page. So here in chapter 1... It says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said... You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So let's start here. Uh, first and foremost, this line, these, this first line is what ties Luke and Acts together. Both of these books 
were written by Luke to a man named Theophilus. They're an account written to someone in the first century who was a convert, right? Someone who, as it was stated in Luke, was most excellent. So he was of high standing. So he's written this narrative for, everyone, for this man in particular to get the full grasp of the gospel. And it's interesting that he didn't just stop at Luke, because Luke 24 wraps it up pretty nicely where Jesus ascends into heaven, right? But he's like, no, this is not the end of the story. This is only the beginning. And so he continues it from here. And so another thing interesting worth noting is Theophilus, the name Theophilus, translates from Greek into lover of God or beloved of God. And so when we're reading this letter, we can easily put ourselves in Theophilus' position. We can read it in the context of that, that time period, but we can also say we're, we're the lover of God. We're the beloved of God, right? And so this letter is equally written to us as it was written to them. And so in this first line, he drops the bomb, right? <laughs> Luke drops the biggest bomb that is going to come for the rest of this and sets the stage for everything else. He says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The key word is began, right? He didn't say, I, didn't, he didn't say, I dealt with all that Jesus did or Jesus taught. It's present tense. He began so from this moment, he's saying Jesus is still alive and still at work. He is still moving in these individuals, right? So he began a work, and he's continuing it through these people who are taking it into the world. And what did he begin to do? He did, and he taught to do and to teach. John Calvin calls this the holy knot. John Calvin being the uh, reformer from the 1500s, right? He called it the holy knot. The one thing that tied all of Jesus together was the fact that he was able to not only teach, but to do as well. He was able to live a life without sin and teach about a life without sin. He was about able to teach about the kingdom of God and bring the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? Like, do and teach, do and teach. They go hand in hand. So what makes Jesus so amazing is in this first line right here. He was not just a hearer of the word, but he was a doer of the word too. And this is where Luke is now transitioning this narrative to say, this is how we have to live our lives as well. We have to be able to do and to teach. All of us. This isn't just pastors. Right? This is all Christians, all who follow Christ are instructed to live this life. And then it continues in verse 2. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So he's saying, look, he ascended into heaven. He's not here with us anymore physically. Mark accounts for him as sitting at the right hand of the Father. Right? So he's now sitting at the right hand of the Father, but now he's using the Holy Spirit to give commands to the apostles. So Acts is all about this transfer of power, right? Jesus has done his good work here. He's come, he's defeated death, right? He's defeated death, he's defeated sin, and he's paved a way for us to make our way to heaven, to have eternal life with him. But he's not done. He wants that mission to go out. He wants everyone to hear about this, right? He doesn't want just his 12 or 112 followers to know about it. He wants everyone to know about it. And so he gives commands through the Holy Spirit. When we go further into this book, we'll see just how impactful the Holy Spirit is. When it comes, it changes everything, right? These people who were once timid individuals now become fully emblazed with this passionate fire and can do nothing else except for walk in the path that Jesus has provided. And so it's essential to understand that while Jesus is not here, our faith 
as we know, Jesus is now mediating. As we sang in the psalm this morning, he is mediating on our behalf. So he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he is sending those commands to the Holy Spirit, which lives in us, right? And so he is saying this from the very beginning. The Holy Spirit is here. The Holy Spirit is part of the triune God, right? And he is here with a you in particular, and I will give my commands through him. And then Luke does something, as Luke likes to do, if you, if you, if you read through Luke and Acts, you'll, you'll get kind of a picture of how he likes to write. And he said he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. He's recapping the fact that Jesus was presented alive. Right? He's recapping this fact that Jesus defeated death. It's essential If Jesus didn't defeat death, if Jesus didn't resurrect, if he didn't come back with many proofs, then there would be no purpose in us being here and believing him. None at all. And so he is once again reiterating the fact, look, for 40 days he presented himself to different people. To to build what? To build witnesses. Right? To add validity to the claim that he's been resurrected. If he just appeared to one person, it wouldn't be as impactful as if he appeared to all of his apostles and his disciples. And so for 40 days, with many proofs, he appeared to them after his suffering, after his passion, as another translation writes it, speaking about the kingdom of God. Still the same thing. The same message he taught about before was the kingdom, and now he's teaching about the kingdom again, right? But this time he's, he's promising, he's making this promise of what is to come. A few weeks ago, we read in Zechariah, and we talked about the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth that would come in Revelations, right? These are the things that, where there's a line of fire in which certain people are in, certain people are out. There's a remnant who will make it in, and there's a remnant who will not, right? And so Jesus is speaking to them about this kingdom, and he's telling them of what is to come. And he's saying for them to be prepared for it. And so... We're starting to get a picture, or a recap, if you will, of the gospel in this first few lines. What do we know? We know Jesus came, was born of a virgin Mary, right? Lived and died after 33 years, roughly. Died on a cross, a horrible death, right? Descended into hell, defeated death, rose again. After he rose again, he presented himself to many apostles, taught them about the kingdom of heaven, unlocked the scriptures to them so they understood it. So even the ones who were not capable of articulating these things themselves, we're now able to do so. And then he ascends to the right hand of the Father, where he sits and he mediates between us and the Holy Spirit. And so we'll move into verse 4. Okay. So in verse 4 it says, While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John the Baptist, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So in this passage, he's now transitioning into a quote from Jesus, right? He's ordering them to stay with them. And and, and the words staying with them as he was with them through the 40 days also can mean eating with them, dining with them. So when we translate that, like I talked about last week, when you're sitting at a table with someone, you have their full attention. Uh, Maybe not so much today with our phones that get in the way, right? But... In back in that day, when you're just eating some broiled fish, and you're standing right in front of someone, you have their full attention. You know exactly what they're saying. And so over this course of time, he commands them not to depart, but to wait for the power that is on high, for the promise of the Father. And, and why does he do that? Why does he do that? Why would Jesus tell them to wait instead of go out on their mission? We know in Matthew 28, 
It tells us to go out and create disciples, right? So why would he tell them to wait? The key comes in this next verse where he says, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus knows something about the Holy Spirit because Jesus lived with the Holy Spirit. Uh, in, in order for us to get a good picture of this, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, let's turn to Luke uh, chapter 3. Uh, and there's a little passage at the very end of Luke 3, before the genealogy. It's in verse 21 through 22. And this is specifically about bap- being baptized, right? John the Baptist was the one who, as we know, came before Jesus to prepare the way for Jesus, right? He came to prepare the way by remission of sins, by baptizing. And at the very end of Luke's account of this, it says in verse 21, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, Are you are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Right? So here we see, literally, after being baptized, the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus. It comes upon him. It's literally this this visible thing in bodily form that comes upon him. And then God himself proclaims this to be his son, and he's saying, I am well pleased, right? Uh, If we know, there's one other account before this where, in one of the other Gospels, where uh, Jesus basically turns water into wine, right? Like at a a wedding, right? And and he told his mom he's not ready, right? (laughs) And the reason why he wasn't ready is because this. He needed this. He could still do it because he's Jesus. He's God, right? But he was waiting for the blessing of the Father, and he was waiting also for the Holy Spirit, the promise of what was to come. And the reason why this is important and why Jesus knows this is important is because the next thing that happens to Jesus in Luke, literally, if you turn over to chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. Jesus, the first thing he does after receiving the Holy Spirit is being led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, by the Holy Spirit, right? (laughs) The Holy Spirit is guiding him and will guide him through the rest of his duration on earth. And so in this particular case, it's guided him into literally the devil's territory. Right? And so Jesus knows that the apostles can't act on their own because as soon as they start acting on their own, the devil will tempt them. Jesus had the Holy Spirit and he defeats the devil, right? This is the first account of him defeating the devil. He's been tempted and tempted and tempted, but he crushes him by saying, you know, what, what does he say at the end? It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to test, right? And then he's like, just get away from me. Like, this is my word. The word has been spoken. This is done. But Jesus was doing that with the power from on high. And so he was asking the apostles to wait for that power from on high. Because if we go out on our own, we will fail. And so it's essential to understand that that power has to transcend upon us before we can carry out a mission, before we can be part of God's uh, gospel bearers, right? Without the Holy Spirit, we will fail. We won't articulate it right. We won't, we won't do it the way that it's intended to be. We'll see later on in Acts, there's a story of a man who tried to do it without the Holy Spirit, and it failed, right? And it wasn't until he had the Holy Spirit that he could really communicate the fullness of God's gospel. And so Jesus tells them to wait, because they don't have this power yet, and he knows that they need them. They, they need it. 
And so what we're seeing in this passage right here is setting up the next commands that are about to come. So in verses 6 through 11, we'll see a little bit more of what happens. But in verse 1 through 5, if there's one thing that we need to know, is that they were intended to wait for the Spirit. And there's a reason for it, that the Spirit and the power that comes with the Spirit is the only way that the apostles can work. As soon as the Spirit comes later, we'll see, them, we'll see tongues of fire, right? Tongues as a fire. And then we'll also see Peter talking and giving this message that Peter would never have been able to do without it. And so in this instance, Jesus is saying, wait. And sometimes what we have to learn is it's essential to wait. We may think that it's the right time to take something out, but sometimes we have to wait until Jesus has given us the power from on high. And this will all come more into fruition as we go a little further into this. So now let's read 6 through 11. And this is, a, this is kind of a recap of what happened at the end of Luke 24. Luke is basically giving us an overview. He's saying, look, this is what happened here, and I'm catching you guys up to speed. But in this particular instance, he's giving us a little bit more detail. He's fleshing it out a little bit more. He's talking about Jesus ascending into heaven, but he's also giving us basically the whole overview of Acts and the whole overview of our mission as well, written in this passage. So it says, in verse 6, So when they had come together and they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the time or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of the sight. And while they were gazing into the heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go to heaven. So there's a lot going on in this passage, guys. In verse 6, we see the disciples come together, right? There's one thing that we all know is that Jesus had preached a lot about the kingdom of God, the coming of the kingdom of God. He was talking about it quite often. And so these individuals have come together and they've asked Jesus an important question. They said, so, they're basically, to paraphrase, they're saying, so uh, is it time, right? Like, you're here, you're alive now, so like, is this kingdom starting now? And he flips the script and instead says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority, Right? He tells them that, and, and that actually goes hand in hand with what he had already said in Matthew before he had been resurrected, right? It says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. He already told them this, right? And so he is now reiterating this fact. Look, I will establish the kingdom. The Father will establish the kingdom when the time is right. But the time is not right, and the reason why is because you have a mission to accomplish, Right? Right now, there's only so many of you who believe in me. Right now, there's only so many of you here who follow me, and that's not enough to fill this kingdom. And so he then takes it in verse 8, and he lays out the entirety of the book of Acts right here in this quote. It says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So now he's saying, look, you're not supposed to worry about the time in which I return. You don't worry about that. 
I will come just as I promised. I will establish my new kingdom as I promised. You will be a part of that kingdom, but, and there's a major but there, you will receive this power before then, and you will take that power out. First to Jerusalem, then to Judea, then to Samaria, and then to the end of the earth. Till every portion of this earth is covered with God's gospel. It was the whole point of this book. It's how it ends. It's how it begins. It's how we are still writing it now today. That's why we have people in mission fields out in random little huts in, in Thailand and things, preaching the gospel to people in their indigenous languages because they haven't heard it yet, right? There's still people who have yet to hear it. And until every voice knows, every person knows that God is coming back for them, God can't return, right? And so he's telling them, look, wait for this power. This power will guide you. It will be the person to guide you on this path. And you will start in Jerusalem, and then it will go out through Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And what's incredible is through the book of Acts, they actually cover most of this ground, right? They literally, like in a period of like about 50 years, have taken the message from Jerusalem out into Samaria and Judea, and then later on they move it into Rome, like all of the Roman Empire, and then they finally make it into the Roman hub, the Rome itself, right? And so they will eventually get it there. And that's what was at the time was known as the enlightened world. All of it was in that one place. Of course, that excludes the indigenous world, right? All outside of there. But that was the start. And so to think that all of that was accomplished in that short period of time, and yet here we are 2,000 years later and it's still not accomplished, which means we haven't done our job, right? We're not doing our job. There are some people who are taking it out, but not everyone. Right. <laughs> They're like, this group really, truly believed it and they went with it and they took it out. And we have a select few. Our churches are good about selecting three or four people that we think are good for missions, and then they'll send them out or they'll send them to another place. But we were all instructed to be missionaries. All of us. Now, there's differences, right? Just as in Ephesians where it says we've been given apostles, prophets, preachers, teachers, all those things, and everyone has their own different spiritual gift. At the same time, we've all been instructed with the one core function, which is to give the gospel to people who need it. And so while not everyone in this room may be called to go to you know, a, a place in the Yucatan Peninsula right, <laughs> and preach the gospel in a, an indigenous Mayan language, right, that may not be your call. You do have neighbors. You do have people that you work with. And I guarantee you that most of those people have not heard the gospel or haven't heard the true gospel. They've heard some sort of fallacy that they've gotten from TV, or they've gotten from some person who polluted them with a wrong idea of Jesus. And so it is our duty, as Jesus commands in here in verse 8, to take it to the ends of the earth, which for us might just be the person who lives next door to us. Amen. And so as we continue... We'll go a little further into this. I want to read something from Philippians. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but you can write this down if you've got a pen or something. This is Philippians 2, uh, 9 through 11, right? And it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the God of the Father. Right? This is establishing here that at some point in time, every knee 
will bow. Which means that at some point in time, every knee will have to have heard the words from Jesus saying, I have died for you. I have given my life for you so that you can have redemption. But it also takes it a little further. It says, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So even in the depths of hell, those who've rejected Jesus will still bow before Jesus because there will be no way for them not to acknowledge it. I read a passage a while ago about, a, 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 it's, it's, it's called Lazarus, and he basically uh, denies a poor man, right? Denies giving to a poor man, which is one of the instructions, as we just read, one of the two laws, love your neighbor as yourself, right? He, he denies it, and then he dies suddenly, ends up in hell, right? This is in Luke. And from hell, he can see that this person has been exalted in heaven, and he is now asking him for some bread or for some food or just a little bit of water to quench this heat that is on me, right? And Abraham tells him, no. He tells him, no. Why? Because you rejected him before. And just as Jesus says in Matthew 25, as you do for the least of these, you've done for me. So as he rejected the poor man, at the same time, he's rejected Jesus. So rejecting our neighbor, the gospel, is rejecting Jesus. It's just as flat out as that. <laughs> and this is something that I live with every day. Like when I go into the grocery store and we're checking out in the line, I'm sitting there thinking, there's a lady named Dixie and she talks to us all the time. And she talks to us about our kids and she'll be like, where's the kids? And it's like, well, you know, they're at home or they're with grandma or whatever, you know? And, and like every time I have this conviction, like I need to say something to her and I don't know what it is and I just need to do it and I, I don't know why I can't, right? Um, and it's my, my physical body fighting the spiritual body that lives inside of me. It's telling me that I don't have to share this gospel with her, or I don't have to talk with her, or that now is not the time, or maybe if I wait till another day, that it might be better. But the reality is my spirit is urging me constantly because I know that something needs to be said. And so, as we'll learn later, <laughs> this is something that I have to work on. I think we all have to work on. It's not fighting the spirit. Once you've been given the Holy Spirit, if you fight it, then you are rejecting your, your brothers, your sisters, your neighbors, and you're rejecting Jesus. And that is dangerous, right? There's another scripture where it says, you know, we will cast out demons in your name. And at the same time, he'll say, I never knew you. I don't want to be that person. <laughs> and so this is something we all have to work on collectively together. There's two versions of the commission. Let's call it the Great Commission, where Jesus sends out this message of, of, of us giving the gospel out. Um, and I want to read both of them to you. So the first one we'll read is from Matthew 28, and then the next one is from Mark 16. So let's start with Matthew 28. And this kind of all correlates together. Um, it goes hand in hand, if you will. And they actually really back up what is happening in this first section of Luke, especially right here in Matthew. In Matthew 28, this is 18 through 20, it says, And Jesus came and said to them, this is the last thing he tells them before he goes, right? And it says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, if we just read what we read in Acts, that means that he is now with God, and the authority of the Holy Spirit is with him, right? So he has all authority of heaven and earth. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Right? 
So what is he telling us to do? He's telling us to go out to baptize people in his name, to create disciples. He's telling us also that he has all authority on heaven and earth. He is the one mediating that path for us, right? He is laying out the path from which we should go and giving us the opportunity to do so. And then he ends it with, I am with you always to the end of the age, which means Christ is with us always, which should also be very, very uplifting, but it can also be very, very scary. Think about it. Christ is with us in our darkest of hours. Christ is with us in our brightest of moments. He is leading us and guiding us through all of that. As we reject God, he's still with us. As we lean into the Holy Spirit, he's still with us. And so he is with us, and we have to constantly check ourselves and ask, am I doing his will? Amen. And that is, that is really hard, especially because... You know, we think we can just accept Christ into our life, and then that's good. We're assured. Faith, great, awesome, grace. And that is true. We have been saved by grace. But the last thing he tells us in pretty much all of his Gospels is that we are supposed to share that. So if we do nothing else, we have to share it. So let's look at Mark. Mark 16, 15 through 16. And this is going to sound kind of the same, but it's a little different, right? It has a little bit of a different variation here. It says, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. That's pretty straightforward, right? Like, <laughs> go out, proclaim the gospel to, to all nations, to all of creation, right? To everything. Everything that has breath must praise the Lord. And so whoever believes is baptized and will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. At the very end of this, in verse 19, is the recount again of him ascending. So it says, So then Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into the heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So we're seeing that Jesus is our mediator, as we sang, Right? He sits at the right hand of the God. All authority of heaven and earth has been given to him. He has conquered death and he has conquered sin. And he is now mediating on our behalf to go forward and to proclaim the gospel. That's our only mission. And until every knee and every tongue confess, we're not going to see heaven come. And so it is our goal to be the ones to take that out. Amen. And so now that we have those two things in our mind, those are the last commands of God, right? The last commandments that we must follow before then. Uh, let's return back to Acts. Acts 1. And as we get there, there's one passage in the Old Testament, and Luke really likes to reference the book of Isaiah. Um, and it says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That's Isaiah 49.6, right? Jesus is saying, or in this case, God in the Old Testament was saying, that he will make us the light. He will make us the light that takes the message out, that stretches forth into all the earth. Because he knows that we can't do it on our own. And that's why the Holy Spirit is essential. So then here in verse 9, it says, When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. So in verse 9, 
Jesus says these things. And in modern context, right, you've probably seen people do like a mic drop, right? Like he's got a mic, maybe a megaphone. He's got something. He just drops it, and he's like, I'm out, guys. See ya. Cloud picks him up, and I, I, this is the way I visualize it anyway. Cloud picks him up, and he's gone, right? Um, and so this supernatural thing happens. Jesus just disappears into this cloud. And this has actually happened a few times in the Old Testament, sort of, right? We had Enoch. And you can find him in Genesis. Who It just says the Lord was with him, and he was taken up. Cool. Like, he was just gone. He didn't have to suffer the pains of death, right? Uh, and so... And then Elijah later, when the chariot of fire was just, bam, there he goes. And so we're seeing this same symbolism that happened in the Old Testament. Jesus, basically those two people that I just mentioned, God approved of what they did. And so God took them away. And so God has now approved of Jesus. Just as he said, this is my son whom I am well pleased. He has now done everything that he's accomplished, and God has sucked him up, right? So there he is. He's gone in a cloud. And then we're promised, we're promised that he will return in that same cloud, right? He'll come back in a cloud of glory and will bring about this new kingdom, as it says later on. But there's this key thing that happens right here. They're just, they're just staring. They're like in amazement and in awe, and they can't quite figure out what just happened. They're scratching their heads. They're like, Jesus just said that we've got to like wait here for power on high, and then he just like disappeared, right? <laughs> and so they're, they're looking into heaven as if, as if in the sky, Jesus is somehow in the sky, right? Like if they can somehow rationalize it, they're looking in there. And then these two men in white robes come up to them and say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This, I think, is the most impactful question of this entire segment right here, right? It's like, why do you stand looking into heaven? Jesus has promised his return, right? He said he would return just as he left. Why are you looking at heaven? Why are you fiddling your thumbs? Why are you sitting here doing nothing? Don't you have something to do? Right. <laughs> right? He's saying, isn't there something you're supposed to be doing? <laughs> right? He's gone, but he's not gone. He's going to give you the spirit. Amen. So he leaves them with this question of, why are you looking into heaven? Like, why, why are we there? Why are we just looking into the sky? and wondering when Jesus is going to return. We do this on a weekly basis, whether we realize it or not, right? We come into church, and we start singing songs of worship and praise, and we sort of subconsciously direct our praise towards the heavens, or what we think is the heavens, as if we can somehow rationalize what the heavens really are. And so we direct our praise at God as if he's not there, right? But what do we just learn in Mark? He said, I will be with you always till the end of days. He's here. Amen. We don't have to sing to him or pray to him as if he was somewhere distant. He's right here in our midst. What does it say later on? Where two or more are gathered, there I am in the midst of you, right? Well, he's here. He's here as, as I'm talking. He's here as you're listening. He's here as you will go out. He's with you in your car ride home. And so they're reprimanding the disciples, they're saying, why are you looking in the sky? He just told you that he's with you. He just told you that his presence will come to you. Don't look to the heavens. Go out. Go do something. Now's your chance. And so what we'll see in the next few weeks as we go across is, they, this, I think this question probably lingers in their head more than anything else. Why are we standing around and looking in the sky? What can we do? 
Just in the next few verses, we'll see later on next week that they devote themselves to prayer. They, they decide, okay, well, we've got we've to hunker down and we've got to pray and pray hard because that's the only thing that we know to do at this moment in time. Because they haven't received the Holy Spirit yet, but they can pray, right? And so we have to ask ourselves the question too, why do we stand there? Why do we look into heaven? What are we looking for? What are we hoping to gain by just looking into heaven when in reality we live in this post-Holy Spirit world? We live in this time period where the Holy Spirit has already descended upon man. And so when you believe in Christ, when you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, as I hope most of you in this room have, then the Holy Spirit is with you, and it is guiding you, and it is leading you. And so why are we sitting around?